Hello and welcome to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. May is an eventful month for the U.S. sheep industry, with lambing for some and breeding for others. Shearing season is in full swing, and preparations are being made for summer grazing. Alongside these other events, though, many sheep have also probably received a routine vaccination or treatment of some kind recently. With that said, our health management plans can sometimes be described as just that, a yearly routine. Revisiting the how, why, and when of flock health protocols continues to be a priority for our show. So this month actually kicks off a two-episode series where we welcome back one of our favorite guests, Dr. Rosie Bush, who is a sheep and goat extension veterinarian with UC Davis Veterinary Medicine, to give us the latest recommendations on disease prevention. Thanks for being back with us, Dr. Bush. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jake. Now, the transition away from over-the-counter antibiotic sales nationwide is right around the corner, June 11th to be exact. And so the timeliness of revisiting health management of our podcast this month wasn't by accident. I'd like to start by asking you to summarize the motivating factors behind why we are going to prescription only. Yeah, so these medications are considered medically important for humans. And so because of the concern for the development of resistance to these antibiotics, FDA, uh, under a lot of guidance with human health experts, veterinary health experts, animal scientists and all, over probably the last decade or so, even more, have been transitioning towards more veterinary oversight for the use of these drugs. So that's kind of where all of that has come from. So what is your advice to producers as far as making this change as smooth as possible? Yeah, I think, you know, knowing if using drugs like, you know, antibiotics that come from over the counter are a big part of your animal health plan, then it would, if you don't already have a veterinarian, finding a veterinarian that you can work with um, and in developing your animal health plan so that you can have the right antibiotics to use at the times that they're needed. I think that's the best approach and being proactive about it really. How and when should a producer approach their vet about obtaining an antibiotic prescription? Yeah, so in order to get a prescription, you have to have what's called a, it's legally, you have to have a veterinarian client patient relationship. So it's more than just calling a vet and saying, hey, you know, I've seen this disease in my flock before. I can't get antibiotics anymore. Can you write me a script? They can't. They have to have been on your premise, seen your animals, worked with you before um, in order for them to be able to then script you something over the phone like that. Um, every relationship is going to look a little bit different. And so, you know, a lot of producers will have a vet out for routine uh, production events. So whether that's preg scanning or if they're, I mean, I guess 
you know, breeding status exams for rams. Right? Those are probably the two most common events. And then your vet is out. They see all of your animals. Um, and so they're very familiar with kind of the health status of your animals. Because, you know, even though they're there for preg scanning, they see all their feet. They are close to the udders. You know, they're pretty familiar with what might be happening on your place. And then it's also a pretty long day, depending on how many animals. So there's a lot of conversations about things and picking the vet's brain about things that you've wondered. And so those are great times to develop that relationship. And then, you know, whether you have something written down or you just anticipate knowing, you know, in lambing, we're going to likely have these things happen because animals did they just get sick? <laughs> so, yeah, it happens. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes, it does. Uh, but that's why we're here recording this today. We know that sheep can be affected by a number of different pathogens. But what diseases most commonly have negative impact on flocks here in the U.S.? Probably from some of the surveys that they've done, um, Respiratory disease always comes up as one of the top, you know, conditions that are need antibiotics that are being antibiotics are being used. Um, other conditions like foot rot um, is a big one, and then um, reproductive diseases, so abortions, uh, things like that. So those are probably the most common, and it's interesting because they're all very different as far as how you know we would manage them and all of that. So, and how they present times of year that we're worried about them and all that. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. There are a, a lot of factors at play. Even for those who feel like they are already doing the right things to maintain flock health, where do they start to really evaluate their disease prevention tactics? Well, you know, like they always say, you can't manage what you don't measure. So it's really important to have not just an idea, but it'd be ideal to have records. Um, that way you can really better compare year to year. And, you know, there's all the different factors that play into how, like when you see diseases and things like that, a lot of them are out of your control. But having those records can really help, you know, you kind of know what what's pretty typical year to year and then when things are getting a little bit out of hand. Is there a line between a normal and a quote-unquote concerning amount of disease incidence in a flock? Yeah, and I think that's probably, I think there probably is an ultimate line, right? Like when we're thinking about the productivity of an operation. If we're having abortions in 60% of the use that, you know, like, how are they going to make money, right, from that year? That's their lamb crop. So certainly there's going to be a line that's very easy to draw in the sand because it has to do with the economics of that operation. And, you know, abortions are very easy to demonstrate, but then is because you just are losing that cash crop, basically. But other things like foot rot and, you know, like how that impacts the animals, it's, you know, it's more on their rate of gain and, you know, all of that, but then also well-being. So those can be a little bit difficult to determine what exactly is too much. And I think that's also going to vary for each producer a little bit. So it's not a set, you know, oh, this percent, you know, of animals affected with foot rot is too many. I think that's going to probably depend on the situation and the operator themselves. 
Okay, well, that makes me think about how far we should go to get an early diagnosis. Should producers be doing annual or at least more frequent disease screening tests from their flocks? That's a good question. Testing can be very frustrating. <laughs> um, you know, the two, well, so, you know, there's not a great test for abortion agents um, that commonly affect our sheep um, because there are strains of bacteria that live in their gut that would react to the test very similarly. So it's, we don't have a great test for the, that type of disease. Um, foot rot, again, you know, unless they're clinical, it's really hard to know if it's there. So that's why those carrier animals can be so challenging because it's so hard to identify them. Um, and then respiratory disease, again, like that, the bacteria that causes the infection actually lives in their upper respiratory tract. So like if it's there, you know, like, so those are, that's so challenging. It would be so great to just test and remove animals that are carrying these things, but testing, unfortunately can be quite challenging. There are tests for like the chronic diseases like CL and OPP. Um, and those can be actually really beneficial to test and manage those animals separately to try to, you know, reduce that amount of chronic disease that's in a flock. You might actually see less of these kind of more acute you know, diseases that you'll, you see more of um, if you eliminate some of those kind of underlying conditions. But unfortunately, yeah, we don't have great tests, but that's where keeping records on production performance, um, you know, how many lambs are weaned, how, how what's their weaning weight. Um, and, you know, like um, Dan Macon, he does total weaning weight for the ewe. Um, so he'll make some kind of selection decisions based on how much, you know, one ewe can raise in a year. And I know a lot of those records are challenging for large operations to keep, but having some knowledge of, you know, total lambs weaned, even group like batch weaning weights, just knowing how your lambs are performing from year to year. And, you know, again, taking into account what the feed year has looked like definitely changes that. But is it what you would expect for that type of feed year um, can really help kind of highlight if you've got maybe some underlying condition going on that, like you said, is subclinical. We're not actually seeing animals limping. We're not actually seeing them actively coughing. Um, but there's there might be a condition that's under there that we should be keeping in the back of our mind to look out for before it becomes too big of a problem. Okay. Outside of testing, what other things should producers be hyper aware of to catch disease early? Yeah, no, that's a really good point because antibiotics work best when there's fewer bacteria for them to work against, if that makes sense. And I've even actually explained this to a couple people where when we're talking about antibiotic resistance, if you have fewer bacteria there exposed to the antibiotic, then there's fewer opportunities for them to become resistant. So you're not, you know, putting them up against this huge bacterial load in the lungs where so you have less chances for resistance to develop. So, yeah, absolutely. Early diagnosis is totally key. How to do that, I think, is really just being out there. Like, it's more of, you know, you 
you miss more by not looking than by not knowing. And that was a quote that I heard from one of my teachers a long time ago. You don't actually have to know exactly what's going on, but just knowing that something's off, right? This isn't normal is huge. And then you can kind of keep a closer eye on those animals that are not acting appropriately. And oftentimes they are, you know, maybe not eating as much or they're pulling away from the flock more than normal. Um, Those types of behavioral things are really key. You miss more by not looking than not knowing. I like that. I'll have to remember that. So when are the most high risk time periods for pathogen transmission between sheep? Yeah. um, Gosh, it really depends on the disease that we're talking about. Um, I would say certainly any time of year that animals are kind of brought in closer together would create a higher risk for pathogen transmission. Um, But that said, even in the summer, let's say, let's say we're talking about Yoni's disease where, or even, uh, coccidia, where they're, neither of those diseases would be treated by antibiotics. So they're probably not great examples. But, <laughs> but even in the summer where animals will probably, you know, even if they're out on range or irrigated pasture or whatnot, they're probably going to put themselves in more sort of confined situations under shade trees or things like that where they're, you know, so even in times where we're not actively bringing them together, they'll find ways to kind of make environments for disease transmission. So that's where it can be challenging. It's kind of a good thing to, that's why it's good to kind of know what conditions might be affecting your flock so that you kind of know, okay, this is what I'm dealing with you know, this is how it's transmitted. So these are sort of the situations I want to avoid. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Do you have any advice on small or nuanced changes that producers can make to their management during these high risk time periods that may have a a big effect on limiting disease in the flock? Yeah. So one of the time periods I was thinking about is, you know, during lambing. So one of the, it's probably one of the more obvious examples, but a lot of those bacteria are transmitted in the fetal fluids. Um, So if, you know, usually we have younger animals that are naive to these bacteria, they're more likely going to be having the abortions. They're more likely going to be shedding more bacteria. So removing animals, you know, let's say they're bedded together at night, if there's someone that's able to watch them at night and remove animals that are lambing before they kind of expose the whole group to all the lambing fluids, moving them, usually if they're pasture lambing, they'll kind of self, sheep are pretty good at isolating themselves while they're lambing. But if we're in more of a housed situation, moving them before those fluids kind of contaminate that bedded environment is a good way to really help minimize the spread of those diseases. Okay, so I'm curious, what should a standard vaccine protocol look like for sheep producers? So I think the the only core vaccine that we have for sheep is the CD&T, so the um, clostridial vaccines. And that one, we, you know, they need a yearly booster. I typically typically recommend people um, to booster them 
at least four weeks before lambing so that the lambs get colostral antibodies. Um, so they're getting that immunity through that first milk from the ewe. Um, and that can help prevent enterotoxemia or all those um, overeating disease, pulpy kidney disease in those lambs in that kind of early first few weeks. Um, other than that, mo there are some vaccines available for to help with disease um, prevention. Unfortunately, most of the vaccines that we have are, they're all kind of first generation vaccines where they're like a killed bacteria or killed virus or even modified live virus where we pretty much get an antibody response and that's great. But some of these pathogens really need both an antibody response and a cellular immune response. So kind of a more robust immune response. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not necessarily, it, it doesn't necessarily prevent disease. Usually what we see with these vaccines is that they reduce the signs. So you, you know, what you would typically see. So for example, for, if you have abortions in your flock, you might see fewer abortions. They'll still shed the bacteria. You might see fewer weak lambs, but you, the bacteria is still present within the flock. Um, and so though it's not really cost effective to vaccinate against everything. You know, we have all these, some vaccines out there, but if they're not truly preventing disease to, you know, like, 100% efficacy, then maybe we should focus our efforts when we actually have a problem with that disease. Okay, so in the incidents that a producer has been giving a vaccine, but it doesn't seem to be extremely effective, there's still incidents of disease in the flock. Can you describe for us what the process is for getting an autogenous vaccine made? Uh, you know, how do we go about that? What is kind of required for that uh, to become a reality? Yeah, that's a great question. And one, for having an autogenous vaccine made, we have to have identified the problem. And you asked about testing, and I was just thinking um, blood tests for live animals. But there's, you know, a great way to identify what's going wrong is submitting dead animals for necropsy. And so there's where you would find opportunity for collecting, because you actually have to collect isolates from those animals on your farm. The neat thing is that they're specific to your farm. So, right, there's bacteria that are different regionally, but they're within the same, they're even in the same genus, like they're the same bacteria, but they have different things that make them unique for your farm versus, you know, a farm here in California. So that's what's nice about an autogenous vaccine is it is very specific to that farm. Um, again, one challenge is they are killed bacteria. Um, so it's a first generation vaccine. It's just creating an antibody response. So it'll have the same limitations as far as maybe not being 100% effective, but can really help take first steps in controlling those diseases, if that makes sense. What is the difference between a killed and a modified live vaccine? Yeah, so that's a 
a great question. I'm glad you thought of it. Um, so killed vaccines are the bacteria or virus that has been basically attenuated or killed so that it doesn't replicate. So it's injected. It still has whatever surface proteins are there that make your body know that this was at one point pathogenic. <laughs> and so it'll respond to it. But because it's not replicating, it's not necessarily providing the same type of immune reaction that you would expect to see with a virus, especially that is replicating within a cell. Um, so when we put killed viral particles in um, an animal, they're going to be presented to the immune cells differently than if the virus is actually replicating within the, the animal cell. It'll present kind of in a very different way. Um, so you get more typically, you can if I'm generalizing, modified live vaccines, you'll you typically get a longer duration of immunity. Um, usually you can get immunity with just one first shot instead of having to do two in a series. Um, and some of them you can give to pre-weaned animals. So the maternal antibodies don't compete with them. Um, and so, and then there's um, some vaccines. These are, most of these are in cattle, um, but there are vaccines that can be given intranasally or orally that will kind of create an immune response to those target tissues, which is really interesting, helpful. <laughs> yeah. All right, Dr. Bush, can you share some of the quality control mistakes that you have seen over the years that actually may decrease the effectiveness of vaccines? Yeah, I think one of the most common ones is the temperature that the vaccine is maintained at. So these, you know, vaccines that are licensed have to be tested for safety within the animal, efficacy, um, so how well it pre prevents the disease um, or reduces the signs of the disease, but then also stability. And so that's what's on the bottle is what's been tested as far as what keeps that vaccine effective um, or, you know, stable. So it's um, actually useful. And so I think the most common problem with vaccines is that they get too warm. Um, at times. And so, yeah, now they have these neat coolers that you can keep your vaccine gun in them. <laughs> so there, there are newer tools to help make that a little bit easier. But yeah, putting your cooler in the shade and not in the sun and things like that, that can be a little bit, you know, you're, you're out there active, you know, vaccinating all these animals. And so that's, it's hard to think of those things, but yeah. And then also animal handling is a big part of it. So we're trying to elicit an immune response. So we're giving this vaccine, we want the body to respond to it. And if the animals are stressed because they just came off a, tr a long truck ride, or they've just been shorn, I know a lot of shears I've talked to are like, yeah, I have clients who want me to give vaccines while I'm shearing. And it's just not the best use of your money because that cortisol that they produce when they're stressed, which is totally natural, doesn't allow the immune system to make as good of an immune response as you want when you're giving a vaccine. So best to kind of try to time your vaccines at times when maybe they haven't just come off an eight-hour truck ride or they've been shorn yet. 
one thought just came to mind. I, I have heard that you shouldn't vaccinate sheep that are wet. Is that true? Hmm. I think that probably has more to do with like creating abscesses and things like that. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I haven't, I haven't experienced that, but that doesn't mean that's not true. <laughs> yeah. There is a, an age old tug of war between what is best and what is practical when it comes to reusing needles, particularly for those flocks that are vaccinating hundreds of animals a day. What is your advice in this situation? Yeah, so uh, that's great. Like there, there are diseases that can be transmitted through needles. So uh, there's mycoplasma species that causes bloodborne infections that can that can be transmitted, and it's it's surprisingly pretty common. I didn't realize that. But uh, aside from that, it you know the the risk of using needles over is probably pretty low. Um, the, I'd say probably the biggest risk is like you were just talking about with the wet sheep abscess formation. So, you know, one of the, I think a good practice that's a good in-between is changing the needle every time the gun has to be filled so that a dirty needle never goes into that vaccine vial. Um, so I think that helps. And then you get kind of a fresh needle that is going into the skin. And then when, if you do have your vet out there to help bleed animals, or if they're, you know, taking blood samples from rams for brucella, you will absolutely see them changing needles because any blood from one animal, even just on a needle, can add to that sample from the other. So you want very clear differentiation between each animal. What about vaccinating animals that are exhibiting signs of the disease itself? Yeah, that's really interesting. So there's um, mo usually we it's not recommended to vaccinate animals that are already sick because they tend to be a little bit their immune system's already pretty taxed, so it can actually make their it, one, it probably won't help very much, but also it can make them more sick, if that makes sense. So um, they are more likely to get a fever and react kind of negatively to a vaccine if they're already sick. And it probably won't contribute to a, a faster resolution of that disease. But there is an instance with um, the foot rot vaccine that one has been shown to be really helpful with clinical foot rot cases. It, that one actually has been shown to have them basically overcome that disease faster. Um, and then I believe, we don't have it in this country, but the, um, bar, is it Barvac, the parasite, the humongous vaccine? That one's used over and over and over in high risk times. So those don't seem to like impair their response to the infection. They seem to help. Yeah, I think what you're referring to is Barber Vax. Barber Vac. Okay. There you go. <laughs> That's right. Barber Vac is a different vaccine. <laughs> what aspects of management can affect the immune system of sheep other than administering a vaccine? Yeah, yeah. At least give you what you were expecting from that vaccine. Yeah. So we talked about animal handling. I think that's a big one or like choosing the dates, you know, not even necessarily animal handling itself, but like, how does this vaccination event align with other big events? Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was nutrition. 
So, you know, making sure that they're not only calorie and protein, you know, status is appropriate, but selenium, copper, um, magnesium, they're all really important minerals for the immune system to function appropriately. So, you know, we may have, we may notice more animals are immunocompromised, you wouldn't notice that particularly, but you would probably just see a, a level of disease that is probably higher than you would if they were had appropriate nutrition, which can be challenging because if we haven't had these mineral supplements in these flocks before, then what are, you know, we don't have that to compare to. So that's, that is where, you know, getting an idea of what mineral status is with your flock is a really good idea to kind of know where you're starting and if something should be added or adjusted to kind of help support that. And that'll help their immune system for sure. All right, Dr. Bush, we're going to step outside of the box for just a second here. I would like to ask you a bit about the science behind mRNA vaccines in livestock. I recognize mRNA vaccines are a bit socially polarizing, but I would really like it if you could provide a summary of what they are and how they could be used in sheep production. Yeah, so I think it's mRNA vaccines are so interesting to me. So we've been talking about first generation vaccines, which are the inactivated or modified live mRNA vaccines are actually a third generation. So there is a second generation in there, but they're not, uh, we don't have any second generation vaccines as far as I know, unless the staff for us, I'd have to look for that one. I can't remember what type of vaccine that one is, but I think most of them are first generation vaccines that we have for sheep and goats. Um, So second generation is basically where you know what protein exactly you want them to make an immune response to. So there's an antigen that you want their immune system to respond to because that's been shown to protect them better. And the benefit of that is you one so so how they do that is okay now we know what gene makes that protein so with a second generation it's basically they're either asking yeast or they're injecting it into mice that are creating these proteins and then you have to basically purify these proteins and then put them with an ant or an adjuvant which is what actually helps make the immune response bigger And that's the vaccine. So there's a lot of steps to that, um, which is probably why we don't have them for sheep and goats, because I imagine it's quite expensive to make those vaccines. The neat thing about mRNA vaccines is, again, you know what your target is, right? Like, so you know what protein you want. But rather than actually creating the protein and then injecting the animal with the protein, we have this gene of interest or that goes, it's messenger RNA that goes into, um, they call it either a backbone or a platform. It's something that basically like a plasmid almost that holds that material, the molecular material. So the mRNA, some of these third generation vaccines are DNA vaccines. Um, those are maybe a little bit more challenging. Um, So the mRNA goes into this platform, and then when that's injected into the animal, the mRNA 
in the host gets, you know, incorporated into the host cell cytoplasma. So not into the host DNA. It just floats in the cytoplasma. And then the cell machinery that's already there makes that pro into a protein. And just like the cell would make any other mRNA that's floating around into a protein. Um, and then, so that protein is now made, and that was our vaccine target. So this, the host cell is actually making that protein. So you don't have to make it in a lab. It's actually made by the host. Um, and so that now you have this protein that they can then react to. The problem is these proteins alone, while they may be identified as the target that helps protect the animal from disease, they are probably not also the protein that tells the body that something's wrong. So there's usually other proteins that are on these either viruses or bacteria that actually kind of elicit more of an immune response. So that's why we have these adjuvants that kind of help kind of elevate, you know, tell the body there's, look, there's something here that shouldn't be here. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's, there's a lot more really interesting work going into what that adjuvant should be. So there are, um, like the COVID vaccine has what are like nanoparticles that like the liposomes that, you know, with different uh, nanoparticles, you can direct the immune response towards either more antibody production or more of a kind of T cell, T, you know, cellular immune response. Um, so it's really neat that you can be a little bit more targeted with how you want them to respond. And you can even have like, you know, both uh, antibody and a cellular response. So, but I think the really neat thing is it can be so targeted and you don't have to grow the bacteria or the virus, you don't, you know, don't necessarily, it's not like with the autogenous vaccine, we had to like actually isolate that vac bacteria and then grow it and then kill it. And then, <laughs> so it's like, once the infrastructure is there for these mRNA vaccines, it's just, I, I can foresee it being really important for the sheep and goat industry because it, it shouldn't be hugely expensive to develop these vaccines as compared to like the second generation. That was a really great rundown of, of the physiology. Uh, I guess what I'm hearing you say is that not needing to have these stores of the pathogen to continually make uh, a new vaccine is the major reason why we are uh, looking at developing mRNA vaccines versus the conventional way. Right. And the neat, one of the really cool things is that you can have, I talked about the backbone or the platform. So that and the adjuvants have to be licensed by the USDA. So that platform, whether, you know, let's say it's for blue tongue virus, that you can, getting that licensed, that's one thing. Okay. So now we have that. But the blue tongue part is just a gene of interest that was inserted into that platform. So the platform itself is what's making the vaccine safe, effective, and stable. So that's what we're studying. The actual gene is, you know, sure, it has to do with efficacy for sure. But if we find gene targets for other viruses or, you know, in a different platform, maybe other bacteria, then we, you know, it, let's say... I diagnose a flock with chlamydia, then I can 
call this lab and say, I want a prescription platform vaccine on that platform for chlamydia. And I don't have to send them an isolate. I can, you know, they can develop a vaccine based off of a gene of interest that has been, you know, identified through different research projects. So there is a little bit of risk, just like with autogenous vaccines, like the, the efficacy won't have been studied, right? But it does create a lot of opportunity for, you know, having more vaccines available without worrying about, you know, bringing in diseases from other countries and you know all of the barriers that we run up against with bringing vaccines into the U.S. Sure, absolutely. So is there a scenario where you think having the technology to quickly develop an mRNA vaccine could be beneficial to the U.S. sheep industry? Oh, yeah. I think one of the biggest scenarios is foot and mouth disease. I think that's a big one where it would be really easy, you know, like we saw with the pandemic, they were able to generate so many vaccines so quickly. And that would be exactly what would happen with the if we ever got foot and mouth disease or when, I guess they say. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, Dr. Bush, we've covered a lot in the last 40 minutes. What is one thing, either big or small, we sheep producers should start doing today to help prevent disease in our flocks? I think probably the the starting point, again, is just measuring um, performance, having performance measures. I think that's probably the best way to start. Another thing to start is developing a relationship with a vet and they can, you know, kind of help evaluate some of those measures and help identify, you know, even if you don't live next to a diagnostic lab that you can submit samples to, getting them involved in diagnosis and, you know, getting a good idea, even if it's not diagnosed by a lab, but having a really good solid idea of what's going on can be really helpful. Well, I'm really excited. We're going to have you back next month to discuss treatment. This month was disease prevention. We're going to shift to the treatment side of that situation next month. Can you maybe tease that episode by describing a common treatment mistake that you have seen? And then we can cover the why uh, next time. Yeah. <laughs> the, probably the most common mistake that I see is people using the penicillin dose that's on the label. So, yeah. Ooh, juicy. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to that, and it's a fun one, but yeah. Thanks, Dr. Bush, for your incredible insight. It's been great having you back on. Uh, if any of our listeners have not had a chance to listen to some of the previous episodes that you've been on and, and give us some great information on, uh, I'd really encourage those of you to go back into our archives and check those episodes out. Uh, Dr. Bush is a wealth of knowledge on the subject of small ruminant health and management, uh, and so we're really appreciative that she's taken the time to, to come on to the, our, our podcast again. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. It's so much fun. Love it. <laughs> Listeners, we certainly appreciate you joining us as well. And as always, I kindly request that you please share this episode or any others on your social media pages. Until next time, remember, eat lamb, wear wool, and whether you are enjoying time in the shearing shed, the lambing barn or out in the breeding pastures. Remember that healthy sheep make this lifestyle 
possible. Have a good day.